Hello, fellow teachers. This has been Wilcox, and welcome to Teaching with Power. Thanks for joining me today as we finish up the book of 3rd Nephi and cover the very small book of 4th Nephi as well. My purpose in making these lessons is to not only give you insight into the scriptures, but also provide you with methods and materials that will help you to teach that insight to other people in relevant and meaningful ways. Now this podcast is actually the audio to my videos that I produce on my YouTube channel, Teaching with Power. So if you hear me referring to visuals and you'd like to see what I'm referring to, I encourage you to check out the video presentation on YouTube. So if you're interested in lesson plans or PowerPoint slides or the handouts that I make, you can go to teachingwithpower.com and you'll find links to all of those resources. So now, I hope that you're ready to dig deep. I'd like to begin with a small quiz about world religions. And uh, let's see how you do on this. How many different religions are there in the world? 50, 1200, 2600, or 4300? And the answer, depending on how you classify them, of course, is D, 4,300. Next, what is the largest major religious group in the world? Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, or Atheism? And the answer is A, Christianity. Number three, what percentage of the world's population identify themselves as part of a religion? 27%, 53%, 84%, or 96%? And the answer is C, 84%. And number four, what is the world's fastest growing religion? Islam, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or Atheism? And the answer is A, Islam. And number five, how many people worldwide are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? A, 13.6 million, B, 16.5 million, C, 18.2 million, or D, 20.3 million? And the answer is B, 16.5 million. So, uh, maybe some surprises there for you. I think it's a significant fact, though, that a vast majority of the world's population considers themselves to be religious. And with all those choices out there, you can see why it would be confusing for many to determine what to believe. I remember having this photo taken on my mission when I was temporarily reassigned to serve in the Eugene, Oregon mission for a few months and worked in the small rural town of Silverton. And it seemed like there was a church on every other corner in that little town. With so many religions and so many different denominations within those religions, you can see why it's easy to get confused. In 3 Nephi 27, Jesus is going to give us some indicators that it's going to help us to know which church is his true church. Three ways that are going to help us to recognize it. So, by looking in the following verses, according to Jesus, what's going to help you to recognize the true church? In 27, 7-8, the first one. 
you will know the true church by its name. In verse 7, Jesus tells us that whatsoever ye shall do, ye shall do it in my name. Therefore, ye shall call the church in my name. So we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. We perform ordinances in the name of Jesus Christ. We testify in the name of Jesus Christ. And we call the church by his name. Therefore, the true church must bear the name of Jesus Christ. Which makes sense, right? As Jesus himself reasons, And how be it my church, save it be called in my name? For if a church be called in Moses' name, then it be Moses' church. Or if it be called in the name of a man, then it be the church of a man. But if it be called in my name, then it is my church. And if there's one thing that our current prophet has made clear right from the very beginning of his presidency, it's that the name of the church matters and how we refer to it matters. As we well know, for many years, the church has predominantly been referred to as the Mormon church or the LDS church. And over the years, we've seemed to grow accustomed to those monikers and have even embraced them. But as a living church that over the years is maturing and learning and developing, President Nelson has clarified that this is a habit that must change and that we must make an effort to correct it. He said, first let me state what this effort is not. It's not a name change. It's not rebranding. It's not cosmetic. It is not a whim. And it is not inconsequential. Instead, it is a correction. It is the command of the Lord. Joseph Smith did not name the church restored through him. Neither did Mormon. It was the Savior himself who said, For thus shall my church be called in the last days, even the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Thus the name of the church is not negotiable. When the Savior clearly states what the name of his church should be, and even precedes his declaration with, Thus shall my church be called. He is serious. And if we allow nicknames to be used, or adopt or even sponsor those nicknames ourselves, he is offended. As wonderful a man as Mormon was, and as honorable as it is to be connected and called by him, it isn't Mormon's church, any more than it's Joseph Smith's church, or Russell M. Nelson's church, or the Latter-day Saints church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. And even though it's been a bit of an adjustment to, that I'll admit, I balked a little at first, mainly because of the length of the full name of the church. But I've since embraced the idea that we need to refer to it as such. And I think I've started to get the hang of it. Now, I don't refer to myself as a Mormon, but a member of the Church of Jesus Christ. And I've noticed there's a different feel to that declaration now. There's something about the name of Jesus Christ that is deeper and more meaningful. And I, for one, am grateful to associate myself more often with His name. So that's indicator number one. His church should bear His name. But that's not all. That's not enough. There are other churches out there that do, in fact, have Christ's name in them, and many throughout the world consider themselves Christians. So Jesus adds another qualification at the end of verse 8. But if it be called in my name, then it is my church. So that's one. If it so be that they are built upon my gospel. That's an important distinction. 
His church must not only bear his name, but must also be built upon his gospel. And what is his gospel? It's in verses 13 through 21. Verse 13 begins with, This is the gospel which I have given unto you. And then verse 21 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is my gospel. So what we find in between those two statements is what he considers to be his gospel. What does he talk about in those verses? In summary, his gospel is his mission to do his Father's will, his atonement, our eventual judgment and faith, repentance, baptism, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end. That's what the church must be built on. Those are the fundamentals of his gospel. His church must be built on those truths. Does our faith fit that description? I'll let you be the judge, but I think it does. And then the third indicator, and in my opinion, the most important. I think he saved the best for last, and, and actually, this last idea is found throughout the chapter, and even interwoven with the first two indicators that we already looked at. How are people really going to know which is the true church? And let me introduce this idea with a small challenge. See if you can fill in the following blanks from this quote by Bruce R. McConkie, a former member of the First Presidency. He said, The essence of true worship is blank. The blank of the works and labors of Christ. If you're not sure what it is, let me give you a hint by, by telling you a little story. When I was a newer father, my first son got a little plastic lawnmower for Christmas. And later that year, I went out to mow the lawn. As soon as my son saw this, he ran into his room and he grabbed his own toy lawnmower and brought it out and set it right next to mine. I poured some gas into mine and he took his sippy cup and pretended to pour some water into his. I reached down and yanked on the pole cord, and his didn't even have a pole cord, and so he pretended to grab an imaginary cord and made a yanking motion with his hand. Well, off I went mowing the lawn, and here came my little son after me, following just a few feet behind. When I turned, he turned. When I stopped, he stopped. And on and on like that until I was finished. Now, why did he do that? because he wanted to be like me. He wanted to do the things that I could do. He was, in a sense, worshiping me. So back to our quote. With that story in mind, what do you think Elder McConkie would say true worship consisted of? He said, the essence of true worship is emulation, the imitation of the works and labors of Christ. If you said either of those words, you got it right. So how are people going to be able to recognize the true church? Verse 21. Ye know the things that ye must do in my church. For the works which ye have seen me do, that shall ye also do. For that which ye have seen me do, even that shall ye do. And then in verse 27, he asks a question and gives a very meaningful answer. What manner of men and women ought ye to be? Who should you be like? Verily I say unto you, even as I am. 
People will know we are his disciples because we'll be like him. We'll do his works. We'll share his attributes and his qualities. True disciples of Christ are defined by their character. We'll know the true church based on the character and the type of people who are in it. The greatest testimony we have of the truthfulness of the church is who we are. And I know I've talked about this idea before, but I think it's an idea worth repeating. When Jesus spoke to the twelve apostles at the Last Supper, he made an important statement about how people would know that they were his disciples. And I know you're all familiar with it because it's part of the lyrics of a very well-known hymn that we sing. By this shall men know ye are my disciples. And what comes next? Is it, they'll know because of what you believe. They'll know because your doctrine will be so sound and understandable. They'll know because the gospel will make so much sense that logically you'll be able to prove it to them. No, they'll know you're my disciples if ye have love one to another. They'll know by how you treat one another, by the kind of people that you are. And you can see this idea reflected in the first two indicators as well, and, and all over the chapter. With the name of the church, go back to verse 5. It says, Have they not read the scriptures, which say, Ye must take upon you the name of Christ, which is my name. For by this name shall ye be called at the last day. And whoso taketh upon him my name, and endureth to the end, the same shall be saved at the last day. Therefore, whatsoever ye shall do, ye shall do it in my name. Therefore, ye shall call the church in my name. And ye shall call upon the Father in my name, that he will bless the church for my sake. He doesn't really begin by saying that the organization needs to be called by his name, but that his people should be called in his name. And the things that they do should be done in his name. It's a focus more on their actions and character than what they're called. In fact, you could make the argument that the church really is the people in it. It's not an abstract idea or, or even an organization. We are the church of Jesus Christ. Not the buildings, not the signs, not the structural aspect of the church. The people are the church. So we must bear the name of Jesus Christ and do things in his name. That's why that distinction is important. We aren't Mormons trying to be like Mormon. We are Christians trying to be like Christ. Maybe that's why we get a little rankled when the rest of the Christian world wants to exclude us from that designation. What about being built upon his gospel? Verse 9, Verily I say unto you, that ye are built upon my gospel. Therefore ye shall call whatsoever things ye do call in my name. Therefore, if ye call upon the Father for the church, if it be in my name, the Father will hear you. And if it so be that the church is built upon my gospel, then will the Father show forth his own works in it. So once again, the focus is on us as a people, rather than the church as an organization. The Father shows forth his works in it, Yes, through his ordinances, through his authority, through his doctrines, but most importantly, through his members. Because if we're doing the works of Christ, we're doing the works of the Father. Because that's what Christ did. Christ was the living object lesson of what his Father was like. 
He says that in verse 13. In that way, the works of the Father are shown in his church through the actions of its members. Yes, we know the church is true because of its true doctrine and true authority and true ordinances and true organization. But more importantly, we know it's true because of its true disciples. We as individuals must be built upon his gospel. Over the centuries since Christ first visited this world in the flesh, unfortunately, Christianity has seemed to emphasize belief over character. That what you believed about Christ was more important than the kind of person that you were. Crusades, inquisitions, indulgences, and executions all done in the name of people not believing the right things. And now don't get me wrong, I feel that what we believe matters. Good doctrines lead to good behavior. But in the grand scheme of things, I think our Father in Heaven is far more concerned with the type of people that we become than with what we claim to know. What manner of men and women ought we to be, even as He is? Every week in the sacrament, we promise to take upon ourselves His name to represent Him. And for how long? Until the end. When we talk about enduring to the end, what end are we referring to? The end of our lives? The end of our journey towards His kingdoms of glory? I think the end that He's referring to is the end of our personal spiritual development. That end is becoming like Christ. So I need to endure to that end, to becoming a being like He is, to endure to the end of His character, to emulate and imitate Him perfectly. The church that has the most Christ-like members, where people are developing His qualities, is more than likely to be the true church of Jesus Christ. So how do we imitate Christ? I like the formula presented to us in the Doctrine and Covenants, and there are four key words in it. The first three are easy to remember because they all begin with L, and the last begins with a W. And let's see if you can find them by looking in Doctrine and Covenants 636 and Doctrine and Covenants 1923. In 636, the Lord instructed us to look unto Christ in every thought. That's our first word, to look to Christ. Anytime I need to make a decision, I should look to Christ's example in that thing. The second word from 1923, learn of me. And the third, listen to my words. I need to open my mind and heart to learning from Christ and I listened to the words that he spoke. And then my final step, what's our W? I walk in the meekness of his spirit. I act, I follow his example and imitate his character. For example, let's say that there's somebody who's hurt me and I feel very vengeful and angry, but I want to imitate Christ. So I look to him in that thought and he says, learn of me. And listen to my words. And I hear him say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you. So I take a deep breath, and I walk in the meekness of his spirit, and I forgive. 
So I see somebody who has made some big mistakes. Their sins and shortcomings are obvious. And, and I'm tempted to feel superior. But I want to imitate Christ. So I look to him in that thought. And he says, learn of me and listen to my words. And he says, he who is without sin, let him first cast a stone. Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? And then I walk in the meekness of his spirit, and I don't judge. Or I'm at work, and my co-workers are swearing and telling dirty jokes and inviting me out for a drink after work. And I want to fit in with everyone. I don't want to be the lone one that stands out. And I'm tempted to go along with the crowd. But I want to imitate Christ. So I look to him in that thought. And he says, learn of me and listen to my words. And he says, let your light so shine before this people that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. And then I walk. I live my standards, regardless of who sees it. Professor Arthur Henry King taught this idea beautifully when he said, We symbolize good in a real individual, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is a man, not a principle, a man who includes all principles. And following a man is very different from following a principle. We do not have to work out philosophical complexities of ethics. It has nothing to do with that. We have to study the Gospels, see what Christ did, and try to identify ourselves with what he did. It is because we catch the spirit of the Master, the Master's love, and because we have soaked ourselves in the Gospel that we know what it is that we must do. The Gospel which we have stored within us enables us at any moment to feel what we should do in a certain situation. Do you see how that works? How we can become even as he is? As we strive to do this, the Lord's promise in Doctrine and Covenants 19.23 will apply to us as well. We will have peace in him. A couple of questions you might consider asking. Which of the three indicators has helped you most to recognize the true church of Christ? Share a time when the example of Christ inspired you to act. Who is someone you know that exemplifies some aspect of the character of Christ? And how? And then think of a characteristic of Christ that you wish to better emulate. What is one thing you could do today to develop it? In conclusion, I try to imagine the judgment Let's say a Catholic woman walks in to be judged, and there's Christ, and he says, You know what? You got my doctrine wrong. You didn't understand the true nature of the Godhead or the importance of living prophets. You misinterpreted the nature of heaven and hell, and the way you performed baptisms was incorrect. But you know what? We can fix that really easy in a matter of minutes. Let me explain to you the truth. And he does. And then he says, however, you know something? You were one of the kindest, most charitable, forgiving, self-sacrificing, and honest people that I know of. You tried very hard to be like me. You're the kind of person that belongs in my kingdom. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. 
enter into my rest. On the other hand, I could see a scenario like this playing out as well. A member of the Church of Jesus Christ comes in to be judged, and Christ says, You know what? You believed all the right things. You understood the nature of the Godhead. You knew the plan of salvation backwards and forwards. You believed the Book of Mormon was true, and you had an incredible understanding of church history and doctrine. Good job. However, you know something? You were one of the most prideful, judgmental, selfish, and angry people that I know of. You tried very little to be like me. I can't fix that. I can't change you. I don't think you'd be very happy or comfortable in my kingdom. Now that's a dramatization, but could you see that kind of thing perhaps taking place at the judgment? Wouldn't it be far better to not only know that the church is true, but to be true to Christ's character? It's more about becoming than believing. I'm convinced that how we treated others and how we developed ourselves will matter far more than what we knew. Some of the worst advice I've ever been given is just be yourself. What on earth does that even mean? If it means to be authentic, then okay, that's good. But here's some better advice. You want to know how to be? Do you want to know what manner of person you ought to be? Even as he was. Even as Christ. Now that's some good advice. Be like him. Well, I don't usually spend a lot of time on chapter 28, but maybe just a brief idea. It's a focus on the three Nephites, or the three disciples, rather. They're actually never referred to as the three Nephites in the Book of Mormon. Maybe they weren't even Nephites. But here were three men who truly and deeply imitated Christ and his character. I asked my students what they would wish for if they were given only one wish. But uh, the rules from Aladdin apply here. And what were those? You can't wish for more wishes. You can't bring anybody back from the dead. You can't kill anyone. And you can't make anyone fall in love with you. And then I let a few of them share, and, and that can be kind of fun. But then I tell them that there were some individuals that were actually given that very opportunity by Jesus himself. Jesus basically said to them, make a wish. Those individuals were none other than the twelve apostles from the Book of Mormon. And what did they wish for? We can split them into two groups. Nine wished for one thing, and three wished for another. What were the two wishes? See if you can find them in 28.2-7 and 9. And the first wish made by nine of them was that they could speedily come to Christ's kingdom. So Christ tells them that they will live to be 72 and then they'll be able to rejoin him in his kingdom. So basically, they'd skip the spirit world and return directly to the presence of Christ and dwell where he dwells. But what about the other three? Well, I think it's interesting to note that verse 5 tells us that they sorrowed in their hearts to speak their desire. And, and I've often wondered why. Perhaps they wondered if it would hurt the Savior's feelings uh, by not wanting to return speedily to him like the others. And I don't know, but it's an interesting question. But what was their desire? Sometimes I've heard people answer that it was to live forever, to not taste of death. 
But that's not it. Living forever was more of a side effect of their wish. Their real desire was something much greater. Verse 9 reveals it. They desired that they might bring the souls of men unto Christ, while the world shall stand. Verse 6 tells us that they had the same desire as John the Beloved. And we know from Doctrine and Covenants 7 that his exact wish was, Lord, give unto me power over death, that I may live and bring souls unto thee. They didn't want to live forever out of a sense of curiosity about the future or out of some selfish fountain of youth type fantasy. They wanted to live forever so that they could continue to do what they loved most, to proclaim the gospel, to be missionaries, to bring souls to Christ. And that, I believe, is the real lesson of the three disciples, and John the Beloved for that matter. I know it's kind of fun to think that there are these four immortal beings walking around the earth and thinking about what their lives must be like. And the rest of chapter 28 teaches us some interesting facts about them, and and I'll include a list of them here. But I really wouldn't make this the focus of my lesson, nor would I turn it into speculative story time either. Over the years, I've heard a lot of stories and speculation about the three Nephites uh, or disciples. And I know of people who are absolutely convinced that they've met one of them. And usually the story revolves around some mysterious visitor who shows up at the right time to help a certain member of the church. And those stories may be true, but we shouldn't get the impression that their major mission is to wander the earth helping members of the church out of trouble. That's not really why they wanted to tarry on the earth. It was to bring souls to Christ. So their focus is missionary work, preparing people for the truth, advancing the gathering of Israel, opening up hearts and areas for the teaching of the restored gospel. That's why they wanted to stay. And I'm sure that when all things are revealed, we're going to see how big a role they played in the growth of the church. The real lesson the three disciples teach us is the joy of missionary work. How wonderful is it? It's the kind of work that's worth living forever to do. The kind of work you never tire of. These were men that understood the principle of Doctrine and Covenants 18, 15 through 16. And if it so be that you should labor all your days in crying repentance unto this people, and bring, save it be, one soul unto me, how great shall be your joy with him in the kingdom of my Father. And now, if your joy will be great with one soul that you've brought unto me into the kingdom of my Father, how great will be your joy if you should bring many souls unto me. The three disciples understood the joy of bringing souls to Christ. The kind of work that you could engage in for a lifetime, and even if you only brought one soul to Christ, would still be worth it. Well, they were willing to live many lifetimes doing that work. They knew that joy. Joy is the idea most associated with missionary work in the scriptures. Back in 3 Nephi 28.10, Jesus says, And for this cause ye shall have a fullness of joy. And ye shall sit down in the kingdom of my Father, yea, your joy shall be full, even as the Father hath given me fullness of joy. So at this point, I like to ask my students if they have ever felt that joy, the joy of the three disciples. Have they ever had an experience where they felt that joy? I know that I felt it 
as I've worked with non-members and, and less active members in my various wards over the years. I feel that joy as I teach the youth of the church and hopefully instill in them a love for the scriptures and their Savior. I felt that joy serving my full-time mission and saw the miracle of conversion in individuals and families. I felt that joy through the comments that come through on this channel and emails that I've been sent where people express appreciation for what's being taught and how it's brought them closer to Christ. I encourage all of us to follow the example of the three disciples. We may not be able to live forever bringing souls unto Christ, but we can seek to bring souls unto Christ during the years that are allotted unto us. If they can do it for centuries, then certainly we can do it during our short sojourn in mortality. Now, just a brief summary of chapters 29 through 30. Chapter 29 reveals that one of the great signs that the gathering of Israel has begun, or that you're living in the last days, will be the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. And there's also some stern warnings in this chapter against rejecting God's words and his servants. Chapter 30 is just two verses long, but invites the Gentiles to repent so that they can be numbered amongst God's people. And that's one of those six key words that we talked about last week. Third Nephi ends with that beautiful invitation to all to come and be numbered among his people. Now, Fourth Nephi is a short but striking book. It's, it's a book of contrasts. It represents the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. It has an inspiring beginning and a disheartening ending. It describes the best of times and the worst of times. It's the Book of Mormon version of the Tale of Two Cities. And the lesson that each section teaches is heightened and emphasized by being placed right next to each other. It's powerful because it is short even though it actually covers nearly 300 years of history. I would begin a study of this chapter by drawing a deep, dark line in between verses 19 and 20. That's where everything begins to change. That's the border. And we're going to take a look at both sides of that line. First, an icebreaker. Another fill-in-the-blank quote activity. What word correctly fills in each of these blanks? Blank is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. That's what Gandhi said. Blank is the object and design of our existence, and will be the end thereof, if we pursue the path that leads to it. And this path is virtue, uprightness, faithfulness, holiness, and keeping all the commandments of God. That was Joseph Smith. And then, wickedness never was blank from Alma 41.10. What's the common answer? Happiness. Happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. Happiness is the object and design of our existence. A related scripture, 2 Nephi 2.25, tells us that men are that they might have joy. Might have joy. Not that we will have joy, but that we might. It's only possible if we recognize the truth in the third quote, that wickedness never was happiness, which also means that righteousness always is. 4th Nephi 1.16 tells us something critical about the people who lived during the 200 years following Christ's visit. What do we learn? 
Surely there could not be a happier people among all the people who had been created by the hand of God. These were the happiest people to ever live. But what was it that made them so happy? I want you to read 4th Nephi verses 1 through 19 and find and mark as many things as you can that you feel brought these people happiness. And in that description, you'll find the secret to your happiness as well. It's a recipe for a happy life. And if you took the time to do that, here are some of the things you might have marked. Worshiping in the Church of Christ will bring you happiness. Repentance will bring you happiness. Baptism and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost will bring you happiness. Being converted unto the Lord. Seeking the blessings of the priesthood. Prosperity will bring you happiness. There are pitfalls to prosperity, and we'll see that later in 4th Nephi. But it is possible to be rich and righteous, wealthy and worthy. Being industrious and working hard can bring happiness. Covenant marriage brings happiness. Keeping the commandments brings happiness. Fasting and prayer and abandoning sinful behaviors will all bring happiness. All of those things contributed to their happiness and will do the same for us as well. But if there was one main idea or repeated theme from these verses that I feel most contributed to their happiness, it would be the thing that seems to be repeated over and over again in these verses. It's like Mormon is signaling to us what he feels is the greatest secret to happy communities and marriages and families and people. He keeps coming back to this idea. And let me show you. Verse 2. There were no contentions or disputations, and they did deal justly with each other. They had all things common among them. There was no rich or poor, bond or free. They were all free and partakers of the heavenly gift. There was peace in the land. They did gather together oft, both to pray and hear the word of the Lord. Verse 13, no contention. Verse 15, no contention in the land because of the love of God which did dwell in the hearts of the people. Verse 17, no divisions or ites among them. They were in one, children of Christ, heirs to the kingdom of God. In verse 18, once again, there was no contention in the land. Do you see that emphasis there? Therein lies one of the greatest secrets to happiness. Unity, brotherly kindness, and equality is what made that happiness possible. There were no cultural or racial divides, no social classes, no labels, no political hostility, no factions, no tribes, no religious partitions. They were one. The only classification that mattered was children of Christ. And they celebrated that commonality. It makes sense to me that Mormon would emphasize that. He's writing this in the midst of a very contentious, belligerent, and deeply divided society that we see in the concluding chapters of the Book of Mormon. He must have had a deep longing in his heart and yearning for that kind of world because he really seems to emphasize that aspect of those years. See, he pleads, 
Look what life can be like when we get along. But then I imagine that warm, nostalgic smile starting to fade from Mormon's face as he continues to summarize the lead-up to his own day. Now comes the shift in verse 20. We've just learned how to be happy. But let's say I'm not interested in being happy. What if I want to be miserable? How do I attain that? The rest of the book of 4th Nephi gives us the answer. Verse 20. And he kept it eighty and four years, and there was still peace in the land, save it were a small part of the people who had revolted from the church and taken upon them the name of Lamanites. Therefore there began to be Lamanites again in the land. The first step is division. There begin to be labels again. There's a cultural separation. Even though it starts small, there's a group that revolts, detaches itself from the main body, and labels itself as separate. Then what? Jump to verse 23. And now I, Mormon, would that ye should know that the people had multiplied, insomuch that they were spread upon all the face of the land. Then what? Jump to the end of verse 23. They had become exceedingly rich because of their prosperity in Christ. And now in this 201st year, there began to be among them those who were lifted up in pride, such as the wearing of costly apparel and of all manner of fine pearls and of the fine things of the world. And from that time forth they did have their goods and their substance no more common among them. And they began to be divided into classes. Now there's another division and more labels. Now you have rich and poor. Economic separation creeps in and the pride that inevitably accompanies it. Social classes arise. Then the next step also begins in that verse. And they began to build up churches unto themselves to get gain and began to deny the true church of Christ. And it came to pass that when 210 years had passed away, there were many churches in the land. Yea, there were many churches which professed to know the Christ, and yet they did deny the more parts of his gospel, insomuch that they did receive all manner of wickedness, and did administer that which was sacred unto him to whom it had been forbidden because of unworthiness. Now you have religious division and religious labels, Many different churches competing and claiming to be the source of truth. And once you have those divisions, what does it pave the way for? Verse 29. And again there was another church which denied the Christ, and they did persecute the true church of Christ because of their humility and their belief in Christ. And they did despise them because of the many miracles which were wrought among them. Verse 34. Nevertheless, the people did harden their hearts, for they were led by many priests and false prophets to build up many churches and to do all manner of iniquity, and they did smite upon the people of Jesus. But the people of Jesus did not smite again. And thus they did dwindle in unbelief and wickedness from year to year, even until 230 years had passed away. Once you have those divisions and religious pride, it leads to persecution. Not only am I separate from you, I'm better than you, and I'm going to physically show you how much better I am than you, how much more power I have than you, how much more important I am than you. I will physically exert my dominance and will over you. 
Therefore, verse 35, And now it came to pass in this year, yea, in the two hundred and thirty and first year, there was a great division among the people. You've got Nephites and Lamanites, rich and poor, the church of Christ and the churches of getting gain and power and denial and selfishness. Then one of the saddest steps. They teach their children not to believe and they teach their children to hate. Therefore, hatred and disbelief are preserved and passed on from generation to generation. And that is eventually going to lead us into the final tragic books of the Book of Mormon. The end of the Nephite story is not a happy one. It ends in wickedness, war, and destruction. So, do you see Mormon's emphasis there? What seems to be Satan's greatest tools for destroying societies and marriages and families and assuring misery and destruction amongst the children of men? Contention, disunity, division, inequality, prejudice, pride. His goal is to separate us. When he successfully drives any wedge between us, he wins. Whether that's cultural, socioeconomic, political, or religious, he wins. And so now I want to ask you, is the Book of Mormon relevant to our day in this thing? Do you see any parallels? And how? Now, I know that there have always been divisions in our society, but it seems that this year, 2020, is even worse than usual. Contention and disunity has been highlighted, especially in my country. Cultural and racial tensions are higher than they've been in decades. Political contention is deep and bitter. Polite statesmanlike debate and bipartisan effort has given way to incivility and a refusal to compromise or seek middle ground. The division of rich and poor is becoming more and more pronounced. And I'm afraid that in all these issues, modern media seems to only add fuel to the fire. We're increasingly turning to news sources that feed our fractures and encourage our biases. There's great evidence that we are a deeply split society, and world for that matter. I mean, it's like we're just inventing more and more ways to label and divide ourselves. Even things as silly as what sports teams we root for, or where we go to school, or what kind of music we listen to. These things can inspire deep hatred and even violence between people. And Satan just sits back and laughs at it all. Sometimes I've heard my students express bitter and hateful words about students that happen to go to another school. And I think, really? Because they live on the other side of the street? Because their home just happens to fall in another school's boundaries? That's enough to inspire such vitriol? Fourth Nephi is a warning to us all. What will all this division lead to? Misery. Failing societies. Failing nations. Hatred. Violence. War. Maybe that's why one of the very first things Jesus taught the Nephites was this. Even before he gets into the Sermon on the Mount material, he teaches this, starting in 3 Nephi 11.28. And there shall be no disputations among you, as there have hitherto been. 
Neither shall there be disputations among you concerning the points of my doctrine, as there have hitherto been. For verily, verily, I say unto you, He that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil, who is the father of contention. And he stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger one with another. Behold, this is not my doctrine, to stir up the hearts of men with anger one against another. But this is my doctrine, that such things should be done away. Unity is a doctrine. What's Christ's message? Learn to get along. Satan is the father of contention. Of all his tools, that's his hammer. It's his bread and butter. It's his nuclear weapon to stir up people's hearts. So some questions you might consider asking your class during your discussion of this. What evidence have you seen of the destructive nature of contention? What helps you to avoid contention? Is it possible to have cultural, political, economic, and religious differences and still be unified and non-contentious? How? How is the Savior an example of these principles? My friends, the tragic ending of 4th Nephi sends us a sober warning from this voice out of the dust. If you want to be happy, don't give in to the spirit of contention. Learn to get along. Work hard to stay unified. That's true in marriages. That's true in families. That's true in wards. That's true in communities and nations and the world itself. Seek for respect. Learn to disagree without being disagreeable. Learn to compromise. Seek middle ground. Be open-minded. Find ways to balance inequalities. Challenge your biases and your viewpoints. Seek first to understand before you're understood. Meet together oft and be willing to work through issues and seek solutions. If we wish to build Zion, we've got to get rid of all the labels and divisions and prideful separations and start celebrating our common bonds, that we're children of God. Then maybe we too can be one and be among the happiest of people who have been created by the hand of God. Well, thank you for letting me teach you this week. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with somebody that you feel it could help. Hit the like and subscribe. That helps the channel to grow. Thank you for watching. And as always, get out there and teach.